0: scrolling through social media, checking our email, texting people. And they also found four other things that we do in our pre-bedtime routines. The top apps that we use are YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, and TikTok. And 11% of us spend a decent amount of time even buying stuff off Amazon right before we go to sleep. 71% of us set an alarm clock before bed and at least have a preset one on our phone and one in five of us plan on hitting snooze the next morning already. Yeah? I'm one a them. A third of us wash our face before bed. 33% of us say at least once a week. And then uh, 29% of us never wash our face before sleeping. And then only 63% of us always brush our teeth nightly. Another 24% do it at least half of the time. 3% say they brush their teeth once a week before going to bed. And 10% never brush their teeth before bed. All right. Now, while phone while phone scrolling may deprive you of sleep, hitting snooze may reduce the quality of it, and failure to wash your face and brush your teeth may impact your overall personal hygiene. Psalm 4 is directing our attention to how even laying down our heads and resting communicates our trust and our reliance upon the presence of the Lord in our lives. So, this whole sermon series that we've been going through so far has communicated in various ways the songs of the saints and their reliance and need for the Lord's presence in their lives. If you think back, Psalm 1, about four weeks ago, Michael told us that the blessed life is the blessed life because of the relationship with the Lord. Jesse directed our gaze to the mountain in Psalm 125, where he reminded, not only will the Lord surround and be with his people, but that he is their confidence in the midst of the hardships they encounter. In Psalm 13, John plumbed the theme of lament and exposed to us that within the laments that we see Within laments, we see the believers live out the paradox of pain and God's promise as we trust trust our God. Finally, last week, Lance exhorted us to behold the splendor of creation and how it calls for deep praise of our Creator. We cannot miss the fact that each message has been providing commentary on the songs of God's people, songs that, one second, songs that are filled with truth and meaning for our lives, hymns of praise to the Creator. They're not boastful ballads of ourselves, the creature, but melodies for the human soul, music that does not become outdated, irrelevant, or drab, but is meant to stir our hearts and our heads to love, worship, and obey God. And it is important to note that the global message of the Psalms is that in light of God's unfailing love and faithfulness, there is a song to be sung by all God's people everywhere. Whatever their circumstance, whatever their emotions, whatever their adversity, these songs are to be sung in the various themes of praise, thanksgiving, repentance, confession, and lament. The Psalms, regardless of time, culture, education, or status, are for God's people as they sing individually and in community like we do. As we dive into today's Psalm, I would like to turn your attention to two big ideas that John presented regarding a lamenting psalms, because we are, once again, a lamenting psalm. First, John said, pain in life is very real and can last a very long time. And pain in life will always drive us to something. Let's be honest. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat when it comes to pain. Like, If you, if you look across different religious traditions, you will see that comparatively... The Bible speaks very much of the struggles, the pain, the hardship. Like Our Bible tells us of different times where there's murder, there's rape, that there's incest, that there is every form of of evil and depravity that we see in our world. If you flip on the news, you see the same thing. And the Bible is not shy to say that there is pain, there is loss, there is sin rampant in our world. And unfortunately, it's also rampant in our hearts we too struggle with this thing of pain and sin. The Bible doesn't gloss over the hurt that humanity has, but instead points our eyes to himself who has done something about it. Another statement that John made that I found helpful in my walk these past two weeks is that lament talks to God when it's messy. It's remarkable that the degree of transparency that we find in the Psalms, we find honest lament to God with recurrent questions of why, and how long? Psalm 42.9, the psalmist says, asks, why have you forgotten me? We see in 10.1, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide your face in times of trouble? How long, O oh Lord, is frequently cried throughout. And it is from these desperately challenging situations when life feels overwhelming that such prayers flow. Yet within the same psalms, we also see the confident expectations of our pleading to our faithful and compassionate God. The Lord invites his people to be boldly transparent with him. Sometimes, guys, like, we, we I don't know if we, we intended or not, but we were afraid that, like, God isn't aware of what we got going on. Like, he welcomes us to seek him, to plead, to cry out, to take your hurts. I think, I think of when I had, I had a, I had a cousin that, that got murdered um, about seven, seven, eight years ago. And the biggest question on my heart was, Why, Lord? Why? I work with coworkers all the time that have lost a spouse, have had a child die in a drowning. You have all these different circumstances that we are around people, and they're hurt, and they're lost, and they're turmoil. And yet the Bible speaks to those hurts. The Bible calls us to direct our eyes to the Lord. And it's okay for us to plead and cry out, Lord, where are you at? Where's your hand in this? I'm struggling to see. I trust, I believe that you are good. But Lord, I'm I'm struggling to see. I'm struggling right now. God is big enough to handle that. And so the Lord invites his people to boldly be transparent before him with no masks and no pretense. Even when our hearts are breaking and in this psalm, we will see that David, wounded by the world, hurt by both friends and family, and brokenness calling out to the one who will hear and won't abandon. Psalm 4 is often referred to as an evening psalm, as seen as a companion to Psalm 3, the morning psalm. This psalm is in the midst of a section of psalms from the 3rd to the 14th, most all sharing the same theme of lament and seeking the Lord's deliverance. This psalm is the second attributed to the authorship of David, is the first to be dedicated to a worship leader, um, to to bring forth in in temple worship and it's also the first to be notated with the accompaniment of music i.e. stringed instruments like the harp and the lyre and let's let's be honest guys aren't we thankful that the fact that we can seek the lord we can we can praise him and it's not just that but he also allows us to worship him with music to have to have a like a worship director similar to chris directing our worship directing our focus to the lord Sometimes we might take that for granted because there's churches around this neighborhood that don't have music. There's churches around this neighborhood that don't have the opportunity to have a, a worship leader have direct their, their eyes. But, you know, we are thankful. We're blessed as a new breed to have some of those things. So, and those are things that are sanctioned by Scripture. So I praise God for that. The worship of our God is not passionless, it's not to be devoid of emotion or filled with meaningless words. Through this psalm, though this psalm does not explicitly give us a setting or a context to which it is being written out of, many commentators argue that due to the similar themes, writing, and content of this psalm with the preceding one, they highly suggest that David is praying as he's fleeing from his son Absalom after a majority of Israel and Judah have declared him as their king and have aligned themselves with him. Others propose the context in which David is writing in the midst of, the, of, of a drought, appealing to the discussion on the grain and the wine found in verse 7. Regardless of the source of David's lament, his de- declaration of competence in the Lord's provision and sustaining power can be the source of confidence for us as well. Despite the hardships or the origins of the hardships and the pain that arise in our lives, it is during these hardships of life that our faith is tested, the formation of our character is exposed, and ultimately... Our reliance and trust in the Lord is put on display for his glory. So church, let's, let's think about it. This world is hard. It's hateful and it's, it's hideous. And I don't know your past week. I don't know your past month or year. I mean, half of us still have COVID in our back mind. But I do know that we've all had pain, pains and tribulations, nights of tears and anguish, loss of those who love who we love, We've broken aspirations, broken dreams, tribulations, nights of tears and anguish, loss, and at the end of the day, it's in these the times that are light. Sorry, the times in life that are dark, and we feel cast off and alone, when we have no shore in sight, and we can barely feel like we're treading water. Like I've been there. I'm there all the time, almost. But at the time, at the same time, I believe, and I hope, I pray that you believe her as well. Here that God will not waste a single ounce of your pain that you've endured. As we are encouraged in 2 Corinthians 1, 4 through 4-5, that he comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflowed to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Church, when it's hard to see God's hand, we have to turn our eyes to his word, and see his heart that he loves us. Sometimes it gets blurry. Sometimes we forget. We're forgetful. How many times do you hear the Lord in Scripture say, remember, remember, remember? We are prone to wander. We are prone to forget. And yet God loves us. And even when things don't look that way out there, he loves you. When you you are struggling to see his hand, remember his heart towards you as you look in Scripture. Can I ask you, though, the pain in your life, where is it driving you to? Is it driving you to greater despair and hopelessness? Or to cling ever more tightly to God and his good promises that he's made to his children? Christ is not unaware of the pain you've endured and is currently enduring. And he intimately is aware of the hate and the hardship this world can hurl. Here, Matthew's accounting, he began to become sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. And he fell face down and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, when anguish, took it to the presence of the Father, just as we will see in this psalm, we will see that David, when David is hurting, he seeks God's presence. So if you would, let, we're going to reread read Psalm 4. How long exalted ones. Sorry. For the choir director, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, God who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious and hear my prayer. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Selah. Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Offer sacrifice, selah, offer sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us anything good? Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, Lord make me live in safety. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask that Lord, that Lord, you would take this time as we reflect on your word, that you would draw us ever closer to you. Lord, I'm not unaware of the fact that there are some in this room that may not know you, may not be close to you. Lord, just like every one of us has been, Apart from you intervening and you showing up, Lord, we have no hope. So, Father, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase, that you would be glorified and that whatever words um, come forth, Lord, I pray that you alone would receive glory and praise and that we would come to love and cherish you more, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear from your beautiful word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So God's presence amongst his creation, as Lance attested to last week, is the core theme of scripture, or is a core theme of scripture, and his presence in our day-to-day lives is the desperate need that each of us have. In verse 1, we hear David ask the Lord to answer and to hear, but it's not until verse 7 that we actually hear David's request, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary notes that the the word face is used theologically with regard to the presence of God. The word face can also stand for the whole countenance in that it is the face that the emotions are expressed. We know this, right? Like, it doesn't take long for me to walk through the door at the house that Heather looks at my face and she knows what type of day I had at work. It doesn't take long for Demetrius to walk in his house and, oh, wait. Chelsea's had a rough one. Yaya's been been up and, and wilding out today. Like we have to be aware. Like we are all aware of this. Like you walk in your you walk in the office of the boss and you see the boss's face. Like this is not going to go well. You, we know that when your child's face is torn up, like they are they are emotionally going through it right now. The face conveys emotion. So whether it be my whether it be, um, like, and this is, this is not just for, like, us. Like, this is the world over. Like, the world over recognizes the face conveys emotions such as happiness, anger, sadness, fear, disgust, surprise, and contempt. There are certain facial expressions that communicate those emotions that we go through. Have you, like I, many times, read a passage in reference to God's face? Because we see it throughout all of Scripture and just continued reading on without thinking a whole lot about what's the significance of that. Cuz throughout scripture we see many idioms and phrases applying to the face of God. For example, his face shines like the one that's in our text, indicating his goodwill and his blessing. Number 624 says, "May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace." Or in Psalm 80 it says, "Restore us, God, Make your face shine on us so that we may be saved. Some passages also communicate that God will hide his face or his presence. Such as when David cries out in Psalm 27:9, Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. And recall the prophet Isaiah in the 59th chapter to declare, But your iniquities are separating you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Other passages communicate a deeper separation of people from God's presence with expressions like God setting his face against sinners. Deuteronomy 31, My anger will burn against them on that day. I will abandon them and hide my face from them so that they will become easy prey. Many troubles and afflictions will come on them, on that day, they will say, Haven't these troubles come on us because our God is no longer with us? Or by the prophet Isaiah in the 44th chapter, therefore, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says I am about to set my face against you to bring disaster, to cut off all Judah. I know I just threw a lot at you, but here's one more. Sometimes throughout scripture, face is also translated as presence, like when Moses asked to see the Lord's glory. In Exodus 33, 18 through 20, God answered Moses, but you cannot see my face. Darlene Goswich makes a helpful correlation. In seeing God's face, one would experience his actual presence and thereby being exposed to God's nature and character. Sinful and non-holy beings cannot survive being in God's holy presence without God's grace and merciful intervention. And the truth is, We have no right to ourselves. We have no rights in ourselves to enter God's presence. Like, think about if think about pre-Christ. Like for me, my situation. Prior to Christ, it was all about me. Just all about myself. Pride plagued me. Fear of man tortured me. Fear of death was all about me. But there's freedom in Christ. When God I wasn't looking for God. And yet he intervened. He made his presence known. He convicted me of my sin. He pointed my eyes to Jesus. When God intervenes, when his presence, when he, change, when he enters in, he changes things. And so we cannot enter God's presence on our own. We need a Savior. But David's prayer is, Lord, let the light of your face, let your presence, we need your presence. So I'm just trying to convey to you that our collective need to seek out the Lord's face, to live in light of God's presence, I'd like to direct your eyes and my eyes to three key components of a life that is marked with living in light of his presence. David believes that he has access to the presence of God, and this psalm of of lament and resolute trust also puts this belief on full display. And so the first characteristic I would give you is that a life that's living in God's presence depends on God. Absolutely depends on God. He says, "Answer me when I call." Let's start with what this is not. This is not David demanding that God hear him because he's the king. He's not commanding the Lord to do for him because he, because of all the good, right, faithful things that he's done. It's not David giving God an ultimatum or treating him like some cosmic genie to do his beckoning. God's or David's petition to God is an answer to answer is grounded in the faithfulness of God and how he is the keeper of his promises. James 5.13 exhorts us, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. This is a plea with boldness, a petition for, of clear expectation. It's personal, it's relational, it's, it's childlike, it's an appeal. David in this distress is crying out to the only one who truly understands what he's going through. God who vindicates. Vindicates is literally communicating the idea that God of my righteousness or justice. It is an appeal for God to act justly on the psalmist's behalf. Your translation may read uh, God of my righteousness. Commentator uh, G. Rawlingson notes that David, that David is appealing to God, who sees that he and his cause are righteous, and who will therefore certainly lend David aid. David is not just throwing up a prayer, like sometimes we're tempted to do, out of our own wounded pride, but he is in the right and suffering nonetheless. You freed me from my affliction. the wording here for affliction is an image of being hemmed in, being trapped by one's enemies or their accusers. You freed me as literally God made a broad place for. You freed me as literally God making a broad place for me, or the KJV says that He enlarged me. David is speaking in the past tense, remembering that God's past deliverance of him, and that it's out of this context that he's depending on God in the midst of his current trouble. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. God, David, David God's anointed, king of Israel, a man after the Lord's heart, as we see in 1 Samuel 13, and whom the Lord blessed and was pleased with, pleads for God's grace and that God would give ear to his prayer. David's typical cry throughout the Psalms is for God to be gracious or to have mercy upon him and to hear his prayer. Literally repeated hundreds of varied forms throughout the Psalms. David in this first verse demonstrates that life in God's presence depends on him. Calling out expectantly to God, believing that he will answer. Recognizing that God cares and sees what he is going through. Remembering the pastimes of God's deliverance, intervention, and rescue and appealing to God that he would show grace and mercy and hear his prayer. So what does this verse mean for you and me and our prayer life? Living in light of God's presence in your daily life can be seen in the substance of your prayers. This verse is calling for us to be confident in prayer, because he who we seek desires that we call to him. We pray expectantly like a child asking his father. Our prayers should be those of persistence. We know because of God's past faithfulness that he will answer. Also, conversations with the Lord also, mar- also ought to be marked with repentance. We are in constant need of his grace in our lives. Y'all know what I'm saying? Like, your dependence on the Lord's presence in your daily life will be seen in your hidden time with him, when no one else is looking. And so, church, how are you and I doing with this? What is the level of your dependence on God? Can we take a moment and just examine our past week? You and I have encountered sorrow and discouragement. What did you do with it? You've experienced joy and accomplishment. Who'd you take your praise to? When you were knee-deep in the mundane and the ordinary, did your mind run to the Lord, or how much just average life sucks? Like, all these different things that are going on. When we are assaulted by temptation or chose sin instead of saving our Savior, did you seek the God of grace and mercy, or did you try to numb the pain and the guilt somehow? If you could quantify your prayer life this past week, I would submit to you that there is a direct correlation to the level of your experiencing the Lord's presence. Think of it this way. You all know Heather and I got a couple kids, just a few. <laughs> all right. We got a couple kids. And at the end of the day, they're in our presence all all the time. Like we live in the same house. Um they know they are kids. They know us, they know where we are, what we're about, the joys and obligations of being our children. Their identity is that of being a bargain all that entails. They have assurance, they have love, security, and protection. But even knowing all this, they're prone and could easily go all day content vegging their day away, holed up in their rooms, in the midst of doing their own things, living in their own messes, potentially only really reaching out to us when they want something or are hungry, or want to tattle on one of their siblings. But as their parents, we are close by, we're available, we desire to be intimately close for, to them, and for them to have more of our presence in their lives. And as much as tattling, complaining can get old, we hear that too. But church, how much more is that true of our relationship with God? How often are we not in the same way seeking the Lord for our base needs when there's some shortage in our physical supplies or when we want to tattle on some slight against us? If you are in Christ, you are in the family, and you have full access to the Father to make your request known, to pray without ceasing. And even when you don't know what to pray for or pray as you should, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. As Hebrews 4.16 exhorts, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Let us depend on God in prayer and find out how much more he desires for you to have a close relationship with him. Living in light of God's presence is not only characterized by depending depending on him, but also fleshed out and believing his truth. So second point I would give you is that a life characterizes by living in God's presence is believing His truth. See that in verses 2 through 5. As we turn to these verses, though, we see David ask his accusers, How long, exalted ones, will, you on- will my honor be ex- insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? David, as God's anointed, is being insulted by these exalted ones. And he's been, he's been for some time. This term, exalted one, is literally sons of men and refers to those of social status or influence, as seen in Psalm 62, 9. And they sometimes are contrasted with the poor, in Psalm 49, 2. The Lord's servant here is asking his opposition the duration of time they will attack and insult him. Not only are those people insulting David's honor as king, but they have spent a significant amount of time loving that which is worthless and pursuing a lie. David specifically asks these men to account for the injury they are causing and calling them to assess their hearts. These men who are causing insult and all likelihood are men that served with him, fought beside him, and maybe even members of his own family. Hear David's heart to his persecutors. He doesn't curse them, but instead he exposes the idols of their heart and calls that they repent of the path they are on. I'm going to pause here for a second. Can we all be honest with ourselves? When our pride is injured, when someone gossips about us or spreads rumors about us or flat-out lies about us, when the accusations that have been unjustly made against us, we, we, tend to try to, we tend to do the same thing. Instead of going to the Lord, we, we tend to try to defend ourselves, or we tend to you know, want to see harm or, or a little bit of hurt their way. We're not to, to act in like manner. We live in a world that the society is quick to accuse, tear down, insult, and attempts to destroy with words. And we also live in a world that cancels and lays up heavy burdens on those that are suffering. Also, this world constantly pushes a narrative of the things that we should love and the things that we are to believe. Take whatever hot-button issue you want to talk about, and if you're out of step with what's currently trendy or the mor- that's out of line with the morales of this day, you're tempted to yield standing up for the truth. If we are desirous of living in light of God's presence, regardless of the stones or the verbal jabs that may be thrown your way, you should heed the admonitions David laid out for his people. In response to that which has captured the hearts of David's assailants and the temptations that we will be that will attempt to allure us, we like David need to counter that which is false with the truth of God's word. It is this response of David, calling people to account for their sinful and hurtful actions, that is an evidence of faith. David addresses those doing wrong, but he is not the one who is taking the vendetta. Or attempting to exercise his own judgment upon his accusers, but instead he trusts that God will be the one that vindicates. David's prayer continues Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Whether we read this as David's response to those who insult him as rightful king, or his instruction to his band of brothers that are on the run for Absalom's crew, we may know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. When others slander, and insult, belittle or seek to cause you harm, take solace in the deep truth that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself and that he will hear when you call. If you are among the faithful, then God who has separated you unto his purpose and plans, that whatever others do to assail you or curse you or harm or discredit you, to try to tear you down, know that God is aware and will hear you. I'm not saying that the Lord will not allow pain, suffering, injury, hurt, defamation, or any other harm that come your way. Recall that David is being ridiculed in the text that he's, for what he's doing is right and good. The Christian life is not about being sunny and 70, but it's often filled with dark periods, storms and discouragement. Yet, we look to a Savior who has set us aside for himself, who hears us, who intimately knows the pain and the suffering and the slander and the like that's hurled towards us. David then cries out, Be angry, but do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. The Hebrew word translated here to be angry means to shake or to tremble. And is sometimes used to describe physical shaking. Anger is an emotion that many of us here may be more familiar with than we'd like to admit. When insulted, threatened, or harmed, we are prone to respond in Anger. But just as David is cautioning his men, to probably, and probably speaking a little bit to himself here also, to be angry, but don't, let your, don't sin in your anger. Hear David in Psalm 3.1. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. We have to remember, David has been a man of war since he was raised up. From being an obscure shepherd boy to being a giant slayer from storming that came to the Philistines to the various times of fleeing or fighting off King Saul's unwarranted attacks. David is not an unaccustomed to hardship, battle, hunger, or sleeplessness. This. But I think we see in this verse that he's caught a little bit off guard, surprised by how many turned against him and are and angry over the insult, slandering of this relationship with the Lord. Psalm 3 and 4 would be placed in the same general time frame as 2 Samuel 15 through 17. And we have to remember that David isn't just one day decided to pick up the pen and pick up a pen and, and write this psalm in tranquility of life but that god breathed the scripture through him even through his style his expressions and even the messiness you can look at second timothy three sixteen through 17 and second peter one twenty one. absalom's routing of david's men david and his men from jerusalem are the likely source of the anger amongst david's men as one can see in second samuel david wishes no harm to come to his son despite the pain that he's caused the nation David Frick is also helpful in providing a concise background sketch for Absalom, stating that the following, that Absalom was David's third-born son, apparently resented being been, right. resented being ignored by his father and resented his older brother, older half-brother, Amon, going unpunished for raping Absalom's sister, Tamar. Absalom would get his revenge by murdering his brother while he was drunk, Fling to his grandfather for a couple years until David allowed Absalom to enter back into the kingdom, but not into his presence. Being overindulged and ambitious, Absalom came to be a spokesman for the people in 2 Samuel 15, 1-6. They in turn gladly proclaimed him king in Hebron, where David was first crowned. Absalom and his men then infiltrated Jerusalem, spread a conspiracy that captured the hearts of the people, and David had to flee the city with only a portion of his army, thus bringing us back to the present context. you got to think about the range of anger that's probably boiling over here. David, who's won battles against all sorts of foes, yet he can't even win the heart of his estranged son, is now, and now is on the run from him. Think about David's men, as it was their job to protect the king and the kingdom, and now they've lost the capital, and those have infiltrated it under their own noses. Think of Absalom, a picture of unaddressed family trauma boiling over to rage and destruction. Like all of them, we too are tempted to allow our anger to go unchecked. And though we can be angry without sinning, more often than not we drop the ball here and we sin in our anger. James 1, 19-20 says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Psalm 37, 8 instructs us to refrain from anger and to forsake wrath. Fret fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. I didn't skip it, but let's not forget David's instruction that on one's bed they are to reflect in their heart and be still. This verse along with Ephesians 4 2-27 uh, through 27 helps communicate a, a principle of putting off and putting on what should be cultivated in our relationship as we desire to live in light of His presence. To put off sinful anger, but to put on an evening reflection and confession to the Lord. There is great wisdom in prior to closing one's eyes to rest that we take away all, the distra- all that distresses them, any unconfessed sins, and the things that cause anxiety and restlessness to the Lord. We should take all those to Him. Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. And so how consistent are you in seeking God's face in the evening before you conclude the day? Some of you may be really good at this, but I'll be honest. It's been a struggle for me. As I've been working through this whole process, like I know I mentioned it at the beginning as far as like what we our pre-bedtime routines, but it's been hard to put down the phone. It's been hard to not think about the things I've got to do at work the next day. It's been hard to like, tune everything out and actually seek the Lord prior to resting. Not excusing myself, I mean, generally I fall asleep five to ten minutes, but some some of you all wrestle to go to sleep for an hour, maybe longer. I've found that just the simple reminder of before closing my eyes to sleep that I should seek the Lord, and to reflect and confess has improved my commun- my communion with the Father, and has heightened my awareness of my constant need for Him. This may require you to stop the endless scrolling of the internet or watching shows until you fall asleep or if you desire to see a deeper awareness of God's presence in your life, it may cost you, sorry, the cost may be well worth it. New breed, we got to be honest. we got to look at our consumption of media, especially in the evening hours. I, I, I have something on my phone every day that says, hey, you've been on your phone three, four, five, six hours. And yeah, I can say, hey, work is part of that. I can say that. But there's a part i got to reflect and say, Lord, is my phone... Is the entertainment that I'm putting before my eyes more important than you? How much time did I spend in your Word? How much time did I spend in prayer? When I when I walk beside the guys that uh, I have a, a couple guys that are 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 Muslims that I work with, that every day I see them praying at a, like a consistent time every day. How's my prayer life with the Lord? I know I'm supposed to be praying without ceasing, but am I? Am I even setting aside time in the morning or time in the evening to seek the Lord's face? We have, to, we have to assess ourselves. We have to assess our consumption of media and how that thing has become an idol and is pulling away our affection and our attention from the Lord. We've allowed this idol to creep in and steal our affection. Let's be honest. If it's, if it's on average 44 minutes is across the country, or for the average American, like... Do we really need to watch that episode or stay laid up for the game that we know will affect us the next morning? Do we really need an additional 15 minutes of looking at other people's Instagrams or TikToks to fuel flames of jealousy, contempt, coveting, or lust? Some of us wonder why we can't get past certain temptations that plague us. Maybe, just maybe, if we'd set aside and put off some things and instead put on reflection and confession, some dedicated time to the Lord in the evening, we'd see some growth in our relationship with Him that our souls truly long for. Church, we have so many things that vie for our attention. And yes, days do often feel nonstop. But it is good and right to slow down, to be still, to reflect before you close your eyes. Let's stop allowing these pre-sleep routines to tarnish our sa- this sacred time. Let's dedicate those moments before you sleep to pursuing God's face. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. David understands that the relationship of the faithful half of the Lord once again points us to faithful living. David is not telling his men to go to the priest and sacrifice a grain or a burnt offering. Remember, they're on the run. They've left the place that they could do that. I would would suspect that the sacrifice that David is telling his men to make is that of which he mentions in Psalm 51, 16 through 17. For you will not desire, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken, contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. He says, offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord, but O church, How often do we find ourselves just offering scraps and trusting on our own selves and our own efforts? How often instead of continual devotion and reliance to the Lord, though we don't honestly want to say it, we often treat the Lord as an accessory to our life instead of life himself. Picture this. You go to a restaurant and you scour through the menu until you find that amazing meal. I think of our old favorite restaurant that's no longer here. I kind of miss it you know. But uh, you scour the, that menu and you look, for what, you look for what you think will probably quench your appetite. Uh, I'll be honest, I'm probably looking at the price more than the actual food, just my own sinfulness to y'all. Um, all this time, all this time you've like, it's quenched your appetite, it's been great food, it's, it's exactly what I wanted to get, but all this time you've had excellent service The hosts were pleasant, the staff was on point, and your drinks never ran dry. But when it comes time to pay up, we gladly pay for the food that has satisfied our bellies, but yet begrudgingly tip the little on the backside for the service that we received. Spiritually, do we not do the same? We get so excited about the blessings in our lives, the things that we truly want, and yet only have a little bit of time for the Father, from which every good and perfect gift is from. It shouldn't be. God is worthy of every breath that we take. He's not, not just deserving your attention on Sunday morning, but he wants to be preeminent in your, all areas of your life. How sacrifice and trust in the Lord should look like in our lives is not the silly little theology that some promote of God helping those who help themselves, but instead it's a God who helps those who can't help themselves. Therefore, we plead to him to help us love him more and more. We don't deserve anything because of our sin, and yet God has chosen to show mercy. And it is because of these mercies of God that Paul calls to us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our true worship. He goes on to say, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern the good, pleasing, perfect will of God. Remember God's love. He has set apart a people for himself. Your toil and struggle, but also your faithfulness does not escape his notice. And as we move to the last point, it's important for us not to neglect to neglect the last aspect of this life in his presence. Namely, that we find our joy in God. So we said, a life in his presence depends on him. A life in him rests in his truth. And finally, a life in his presence enjoys him. Looking at verses six through eight, David opens with how many of his followers are asking the question, who can show us anything good? David's troops have grown weary of living in the wilderness with Absalom's forces pursuing them. It is out of this difficult scenario that they are questioning if anything good can come out of it. Isn't it wild that we kind of ask the same question? These men are asking them the same, just a little bit differently. We ask or we, or or the culture at large, ask, when will I truly be happy? When will the pain stop? When will life finally slow down? When will there finally be enough in the bank account that we stop fighting? When will my child find peace and confidence? When will depression, anxiety, anger, jealousy end? When, God, will you answer my prayer? When will I stop screwing up in this area of life? Who can bring good Because I can't, I'm struggling to see, God, how you can. How can anything good come out of this mess? I'd almost rather give up. This world is asking the question. And it is here that we see David turn to prayer, seeking God's presence. Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. Here's David's request. David pleads that the light of the Lord's face, his gracious and good presence, would shine upon him and the people. David, as the leader, is hearing his men's doubts. And David's response is to intercede for the Lord Lord to show his favorable presence upon them all. Many of David's followers have become discouraged and downright hopeless. But David's response is by seeking God's favor and encouragement. Likewise, there's enough things in this world that you can lose sleep and despair over. It is when we encounter the Lord when life is defined by an intimate and close relationship with Him that the pains and the hopelessness that this world fuels start to ease. Hope and joy is found in the Lord our God when there is no way He made a way through Christ and the things that we need in this, the things that we need is the light of His face shining in every dark corner and crevice of our lives. And so from this, and so, Some of us in this room, let's be honest, some of us in this room, it it might be a scary prayer to say, God, take it all. God, I, I need you in every area of my life. God, this anger I have, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to get rid of it. Lord, I need you to do something about it. I need you to change me. Lord, this lust that I keep on running back to, Lord, I want my eyes and my heart and my affection to be for you. Please kill this in me. Please draw me near to you. There's some things in our lives that we don't want exposed, we don't want to let go of. You are ashamed of your sin, but at the same time, you're simultaneously clinging to it. And you're trying to see life outside of that idol. God is offering you freedom today. And this freedom freedom and joy is bound only up in Him. He is the only one that is that you can find your true joy in, your fullness of joy is only found in the Lord. And so, David declares, "You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their, grain, new, when their grain and new wine abound." The Lord is sorry. Joy is the opposite of discouragement. And how gracious our God is that He is the source of joy. He fulfills more than He fulfills more than when things are overflowing. Joy is not always happiness, nor is the result of happy circumstances. But what we see demonstrated here is that David's joy is in light of the peril he's experiencing, is is directly resulting from his close relationship with the Lord. Jesus says this same thing in a parable. We have all heard that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. David and his men are presumably short in supplies, having promptly fled Jerusalem and been on the run for some time. And though grain and wine would be great blessings right now, his faith is so unshaken because the Lord is his source of joy. Remember that God gives greater joy than this world can, that he is the ultimate source of your joy, and that he can give you joy regardless of the circumstances that you are facing. And our joy in the Lord is not something that we will keep secret, but out of the abundance of our heart we will speak about it. And it is out of this confidence that the Lord's provision and protection, David's belts out this last stanza of his song. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. They've been on the run. Most of Israel has turned their back on David. David's army is small and men for hire, and many of them are turned to grumbling. This sounds more like a recipe for a coup than someone, uh, or, or for someone to turn David over some coin. Um, for the self-appointed Absalom yet David has such a confidence in the Lord's character and its protection that he cannot only lay down his head to sleep but he can do so in peace David credits the Lord for being the only one who can allow him to live in safety this doesn't mean that harm and hardship could not come but it is a rested confidence that the Lord is for his people and will hear and will not abandon what about you what keeps you from peaceful sleep from allowing your eyes to rest, your mind to be at ease, and your hope in alignment with the only one who can make you live in safety. Remember that God will keep you secure. So tonight, go home, get restful sleep, knowing that God cares about you. So <clears throat> as we close, there's a problem I've got to bring to your attention though. Because we as people too often don't live lives in God's presence. But instead are more in common with Jonah fleeing from the Lord's presence than desiring to approach it. When the Lord says, depend on me, (coughs) we often say, I got this. When the Lord says, believe me, we say to ourselves, "Eh, maybe there's another way. When he says, find your joy in me, we instead seek for life and that which is dead and dying. The early church father, John Systrom, is recorded to have said the following, that if I were the fittest in the world to preach a sermon to the whole world, gathered together in one congregation, and had some high mountain for my pulpit, from when I might have the prospect of all the world in my view, and were furnished with the voice of brass, a voice as loud as the trumpets of an archangel, and that all the world might hear me, I would preach no other text than that in the Psalms. O oh, sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after lies? Church, David the King, the Anointed One, is a type and a picture of a better king, the Anointed One, the Messiah, Jesus. Psalm 42 can be directed towards us because we do the same thing. Those who walked beside Christ did the same thing. Christ came and we insulted him. We hated him. We loved that which was worthless and instead pursued a lie. Instead of loving him, we, like Judas, betrayed him with a kiss. Instead of going with our Lord, we fled like the disciples scattering when the guards rolled up on them. Instead of pursuing God who tabernacled amongst us, we, like Peter, said... I don't know him. Instead of bowing to God incarnate in our midst, we, like the religious leaders spat on and beat him. Instead of confessing that he is the way, the truth, the life, we we, like Pilate, ask, what is truth? Instead of wanting the Prince of Peace, we, like the crowds, ask for a murderer called Barabbas. Instead of giving him all praise and glory as king, we mocked and injured him with a crown of thorns and a scourging. And like those with hammers and nails and beams of wood in the hand, we nail the Son of, Son of God to the accursed tree. We likewise have been in rebellion and sought to kill the God who took on flesh. But death couldn't hold him. And the grave couldn't contain him. And three days later, Jesus rose again, bringing salvation and hope for all who would repent, and turn from their sin and believe on him. David's request of letting the light of your face shine on us has been fully answered in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. God invites you to come into his presence, live life in his presence, Church, we should pursue constant communion with him in the midst of the ordinary, in the midst of daily life. I call, if you don't know him, church, I, I recognize there's a whole bunch of us here that, you know, some are close, some are far away, and some don't even have an, an understanding of what their relationship with God looks like. I just call us all to turn our eyes to Jesus. Whether you're near or far, he desires for you to come to know him, to love him, to treasure and cherish him because that is the longing of our soul. He is worthy of that. He is glorious. He is good. And he wants you to know him. And sometimes, like I know we got a couple kids in here. Kids, I know sometimes you all feel like you're just sitting here and that you're not allowed to participate. You're not allowed to be a part of that. You likewise can put your trust and your faith in Jesus. Jesus just like anybody else here. So as we close, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be glorified. Father, I thank you that we are allowed to enter your presence, not because of our merits, not because of anything that we can do or can bring to the table, but only because of what Christ has done that you made a way when there was no way. And, Lord, I ask that your presence would be here, that, Holy Spirit, that you would change us, that you would draw us near to you, that we'd seek your face, O God. And this week, when things are falling apart, Lord, that I pray that we would direct our attention to you and that we find hope and healing with you. We trust you. We thank you. We love you, Jesus.